Have you ever wished you were more like Jesus? Anybody here? Have you ever wished your neighbor was more like Jesus? Everyone here, right? We all wish we were more like Jesus, or at least our neighbor was more like Jesus, because as I read the, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is amazing. I mean, everybody was drawn to Jesus because he, well, he naturally bore the fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus was amazing because as you look at his public ministry, which only lasted three years, he accomplished so so much. Yes, Jesus was busy, but he never seemed to be in a hurry. He had time for anyone. When someone came to him with a need, he offered them compassion and love, grace, and healing. Yes, Jesus was remarkable. His, his teachings are profound. In fact, even non-believers today recognize the great teaching and great leadership of Jesus. Time Magazine, uh, a few years ago, uh, identified Jesus as the most influential person in the history of the world. Everyone admires Jesus. How can we become more like Jesus today? Well, in 2012, I had the opportunity to take a class on spiritual formation taught by a guy named Dallas Willard. If you've never heard of Dallas Willard, he's written several books. Uh, one of his books is The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. Another book that you can see right up there, The Divine Conspiracy, which is actually an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Dallas Willard in this class that was actually taught in a monastery focused on how throughout the history of the church, people have been transformed by doing certain spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that we actually see Jesus do in his ministry. You may remember that before Jesus launches his ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying, spending time in solitude with our heavenly Father. And then you'll see throughout the ministry of Jesus, he would go away to pray. After he feeds the 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two fish, he goes off to pray to be alone with our Heavenly Father. On the night that he was betrayed, he, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. He set himself apart to, to pray, to ask God to guide him. Yes, if we want to become more like Christ, we need to do the kinds of things that Jesus did, the type of spiritual practices and disciplines that Jesus and his earliest followers and the leaders throughout the church history have been doing because it's through these practices that the Holy Spirit helps transform us that we can better connect to God today. Well, I was taking this class. It was really a great uh, afternoon. One time I was in the lunch line, and uh, I noticed that Dallas Willard was sitting at a lunch table by himself. Now, that's a crime. Nobody wants to eat by themselves, right? I mean, maybe a really introverted person would, but I'm extroverted. I can't understand that, right? I got to sit with. So I see him by himself. And I said, well, I'm going to ask if I can sit with Dallas Willard, the teacher. So I said, hey, Dallas, can I sit with you? He said, sure. And I got to have an entire hour with Dallas Willard to myself because nobody else joined us, even though there were two open seats. And I'm kind of a Cliff Notes guy, to be honest, in high school. Do you all remember the Cliff Notes? Kids, you shouldn't read that, but I did. Uh, it's kind of the shorter version of what a book might be about. Like, you might have to read uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which is kind of a long book. And you can get the Cliff Notes, which is like this thin. You can kind of get the highlights of it, right? So we've been studying spiritual practices. In fact, we've been in a monastery for two weeks. We've actually been doing some of these spiritual practices. And I'm like, man, I have taken so much information in this class. I said, Dallas, what's the one thing I could do? to become more like Christ. If there was one spiritual practice that I should really emphasize in my life today, what's the one thing I could do to become more like Christ? And he looked me right in the eyes. He said, the best thing you could do, Howard, to become more like Christ is to read, meditate on the Sermon on the Mount every day for 30 days. Notice inside your bulletin, there's a little bookmark here. 
and it's got a 30-day reading plan. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's only three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And for 30 days, I'm going to invite you to join me in doing what I did several years ago, reading through the Sermon on the Mount every day for 30 days. In fact, I did it, and I, I enjoyed it so much, I actually did it for 60 days. Every day I read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and I would memorize different verses or phrases as it stood out to me as I would read it that morning. And what was amazing is that I began to read through the Sermon on the Mount every day for 60 days, reading through it every day for 60 days, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I began to look at the world through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. I began to, to see opportunities where I could actually live out the Sermon on the Mount. Something would happen in my life that day, and the Holy Spirit would bring to mind a phrase or a word from the Sermon on the Mount, and immediately I would know what Jesus would have me do. Yes, if we will take time to meditate and read the Sermon on the Mount regularly, we'll find that God will begin to transform our thinking. In fact, the mission statement of our church is to discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. We want to discover and live the way of Christ. The way of Christ is articulated best in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us about the, the golden rule, how to treat others the way we, we would like to be treated, he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. He reminds us that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He encourages us to pray for our enemies. To live out these words, we can begin to be transformed, to become more like what Christ. Yes, the way of Christ is articulated best in the Sermon on the Mount. And people throughout history have written books and books and books and books about the Sermon on the Mount, just Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In fact, uh, Craig Blomberg, who is a New Testament scholar from Denver Seminary, and actually, when Lee Strobel wrote his book, The Case for Christ, and he was investigating the claims of Christianity, and he wanted to find a New Testament scholar who could tell him how we know for sure that the Gospels are a faithful account of the life and times of Jesus, he went and spoke to Craig Blomberg. Craig Blomberg was a premier New Testament scholar. And this is what Craig Blomberg says in his commentary on Matthew about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Perhaps no other religious discourse in the history of humanity has attracted the attention which has been devoted to the Sermon on the Mount, philosophers and activists from many non-Christian perspectives who refuse to worship Jesus, nevertheless, have admired his ethic. In the 20th century, Mohandas Gandhi was the sermon's most famous non-Christian devotee. Now, you may have seen the movie in the 80s called Gandhi. It's a really good movie. Kids, if you haven't seen it, uh, maybe let your parents watch it with you. But it's a really good movie. It's the story about Gandhi, who was this lawyer from India who by studying the Sermon on the Mount and putting into practice the nonviolent teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he was able to free India from English rule, English uh, uh, control. And what's interesting, though, is Mahatma Gandhi, a Hindu, was studying the Sermon on the Mount. He's reported of saying this about the Sermon on the Mount and really about Christians that he saw. He said, I like your Christ. I think we've got the quote here. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. As he was being ruled by a Christian country like England, he found that so many Christians were not acting at all like what Christ says we should be doing in the Sermon on the Mount. In this postmodern world where truth is relative, where truth is based on one's experience, how can we make sure that we become more like Jesus so that people can experience the love of Christ through us today and they might have ears to hear what Jesus has to say? I believe the, believe the key to transformation is by reading, meditating, memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. 
So I encourage you to, to join me on this 30-day journey. Read it every day, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, every day for 30 days, and you'll see that it will change your life. But as we begin that journey, I want you to invite you to turn to Matthew 4, 23, which kind of puts the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll look at the first three Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. But before I read God's Word, uh, let's call upon His Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Matthew by your spirit to write down the words of the most famous sermon ever preached, a sermon that still inspires and transforms lives today. God, as we read these familiar words, we pray that you might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. It may be found on page 1028 of your Red Pew Bible. I would encourage you to pull out that Red Pew Bible and read along with me and keep it open throughout the message as I make reference to the text. Matthew 4, verse 23. Listen to God's word. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, them these sayings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll look again at Matthew 4, verse 23, that, that very first verse I read. It says, He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming exactly? Well, the Greek word for gospel is eugelion. It literally means good news. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What is this good news of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching and proclaiming exactly. Well, in Matthew 4.17, we're actually given a, a brief preview of, of what it is that Jesus has been saying, a, a brief glimpse of it. In Matthew 4.17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you say that with me? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does it mean to repent exactly? Well, the Greek word for repent... Uh, it means repent. It also means a change of mind, a change of thinking in the Greek. But the Jewish audience that was mostly listening to Jesus when he said repent for the kingdom of heaven, the Hebrew word for repent there literally means to return or to turn towards, turn back to specifically. The idea in the Hebrew mindset is that one would begin to go down this road of sin, this road of destruction, this road of death. And what they needed to do is they needed to repent. They needed to turn back to God and return to God, very much like the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15, that powerful story that we read there. As one is heading down the road of sin, they've got to repent. They've got to turn and return 
to God. And why do they need to return? Because according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, now as uh, 21st century Americans, we don't tend to think about kings and kingdoms anymore because back in 1776, we got rid of kings, right? We had the Declaration of Independence and we got rid of King George in England and we don't have kings or kingdoms. But in the first century, Israel was living under Roman rule. And there was a Caesar, not a king, but there was a Caesar. And they were looking forward to the day when, when the kingdom of Israel would be reclaimed and reestablished. But Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The power of God's heavenly kingdom is at hand. It is near. It is among you if you're paying attention. How is the kingdom of heaven going to be made known among these people that are listening to Jesus preach? By his powerful works of healing. Listen again to what Jesus did in Matthew 4, 23 and 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Notice where people are coming from to encounter Jesus, to hear him preach, to receive his healing touch. I've got a map here I want to show you of first century Israel. It may be hard for you to read uh, from that distance, but I'll just kind of give you the highlights. That top body of water is the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus' ministry was kind of headquartered around that, specifically the town of Capernaum. And he ministered along the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who've been called uh, to be his earliest disciples, we read about that in Matthew 4, uh, that they lived in Capernaum. And so that was kind of the base or the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. And he would go around the Sea of Galilee preaching and teaching and healing those with various diseases. And as word spread about Jesus, people started coming from all over. They came from Syria, which is north of, uh, of Galilee. They came from the Decapolis, which is actually on this map, it's shown in purple. Uh, that would be east of where he was in the Sea of Galilee. They came from Judea, which is the southwest. Uh, they were coming from all over. Why were they traveling miles and miles and miles to see Jesus? Because they were sick. They were hurting. They were paralyzed. They were demon-possessed. In one word, they were desperate. Desperate for a healing touch. And as we saw a moment ago in Leviticus, there it is, Leviticus 21, the, the sick and the hurting and those who, who had ailments and who had different walking disabilities were not allowed into the temple of Jerusalem. The religious elite had rejected these people who are sick and hurting and demon-possessed because back then in ancient times they thought that if you're sick, if you've got some kind of paralysis, if you've got epilepsy, if you've got some kind of disease, well, it's probably a result of your own sin. You may remember in John 9, uh, there's the powerful story where, where Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who was born blind. And the disciples, kind of with that same type of thinking, ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus corrects their horrible theology and says, neither. This man is this way so that God might be glorified in him and through him. Yes, back then they thought that if you're demon-possessed or you've got some kind of paralysis or if, if you've got some kind of seizures, well, then that must be a result of your sin. And so you were not welcomed in the temple. The religious elite of Jerusalem and Judea had rejected these people. They thought maybe this carpenter from Nazareth, 
might be able to help me. I hear he's been healing people. And so in desperation, they travel miles and miles and, and miles to be healed by Jesus. And so when Jesus sees this broken, demon-possessed, paralyzed, sick, hurting crowd, he looks at them, and he can tell they're desperate. And then he says the opening words of this beautiful sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are, who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit exactly? Well, I love the way that Eugene Peterson who was a Presbyterian minister. He was also a, an Old Testament, New Testament scholar, uh, professor uh, at uh, Regent Seminary. Uh, he's translated the Bible into contemporary English. It's called The Message. You may notice that on your little bookmark there, there's a quote from the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'd like for us to all read it together if we can. It says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You may notice that there's a little rope at the end, huh? That's so nice. To, right, thank you for Kara, our communications uh, director, who had this insightful way to encourage all of us to join us on this 30-day journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Recognizing that we are blessed when we're poor in spirit or, or at the end of our rope. When we've exhausted all of our own personal resources and we've done all we can and we feel like there's nothing more we can give, nothing more we can do. We're just wiped out. We're at the end of our rope. Have you ever felt like you're at the end of your rope? I know I have. Particularly this year. Uh, as many of you know, on uh, January 4th, my mom passed away uh, kind of suddenly to me. She'd had pancreatic cancer. It was a very intense uh, bout with that. Didn't know that was coming for this year. Then on March 4th, my mother-in-law died. Just literally two months to the day, my mother-in-law passed away. Now, on June 13th, my favorite uncle, Uncle Bob, uh, passed away. In fact, my middle name is Robert. I was named after him. He's the one who made me a Red Sox fan. There's good and bad to that. Depending on the year, this is not a good year, but 2018 was a great year to be a Red Sox fan. But my Uncle Bob took me to Fenway Park. He lived in Massachusetts. He had a great relationship with him. I loved him dearly. And he died suddenly in June, on June 13th. And then recently in July, one of our good friends from Dallas, uh, who's our age, passed away suddenly, uh, just, uh, just unexpectedly. You know, this grief, this time of experience, and one grief after another, after one disappointment after another, one heartache after another, you can feel like you're broken. Like you're at the end of your rope. You know, if we reflect on the last couple years, I'm sure we've all felt like we're at the end of our rope, don't we? You remember in March 2020 when COVID became a, a global pandemic and there was the, the, the international shutdown and, and businesses had to shut down and many of those businesses never were able to reopen because of, the, because of the global pandemic and we had to isolate and we had to spend time alone. We couldn't interact unless it was at least six feet away and you had to yell at friends from a distance. You couldn't get close again. You couldn't hug. You couldn't shake. And, and there's all this fear and anxiety. As millions and millions of people died, in fact, members of our own congregation died of COVID. It was very serious disease. And, of course, then the government gave stimulus checks, which was, which was okay at first, but now it's leading to inflation, evidently. That's not a good thing. That, that makes me a little anxious and nervous. You may remember that uh, in June of 2020, there was the racial riots because of George Floyd's uh, uh, killing, and, and there were all these different racial riots happening throughout our country, and then there was the hashtag MeToo movement, and there was division between genders and race, and then there was uh, even greater division between parties, Republican and Democrat, as there was a, a contentious election, and some people feel like, you know, the, 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 the results weren't accurate, and, and there's still a lot of anxious anxiety about that, and then in January of 2021, there was a storming of the Capitol, which divided our, our country 
even further. And then in 2022, Russia attacked Ukraine, which destroyed the supply chains for oil and gas for, for many, as well as harvesting wheat. And there's, there's all this anxiety, worried about, are we going into World War III? Who knows what's going to happen next? And now we've got this recession and, and rising inflation, and that means they've got to raise the interest rates, which means uh, even a bigger recession could potentially come in. And it's easy to feel like we're at the end of our ropes sometimes. Amen? So what are we to do when we feel like we're at the end of our rope? Jesus says it's in that moment that you're blessed. Because in that moment, you finally see clearly there's nothing I can do. I need God's help. You know, we grow through brokenness. We grow through brokenness. Can you say that with me? We grow through brokenness. This pandemic has led to a lot of brokenness. And if we're wise, we'll do what Jesus is telling us to do. We'll, we'll turn to him. In fact, if you continue to read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now a yoke, if you're not, didn't grow up on a farm, uh, my dad did, but I didn't. A yoke is an instrument that's usually wooden, and it would connect two ox together so they might pull the plow and break up the rocky ground of ancient Israel, or they might pull a load together, combining their strengths together. And Jesus says his yoke is light, his burden is light because he carries the weight for us. If we will come to Christ in our brokenness, when we feel like we're at the end of our rope, when we're poor in spirit, then he will carry us and he will give us rest. You know, as I've been grieving this last year at different times in different ways, things come up and you remember this about my mom or my mother-in-law or my uncle, and you just start to find myself becoming weepy and, and, I, and I think about, uh, I start to pray more. And as I've been praying more, I've experienced uh, what Jesus says in the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Because as I've been experiencing grief and mourning, that life isn't the way I thought it would be, and the death of a loved one, as I've been praying and, and mourning, I've been praying more, I've been talking to God more, I've been listening to God more, spending more time in his word, and I've been reminded through his word where my loved ones in the Lord are today. There's no more mourning, no more death, only praise. John the Apostle describes it beautifully in Revelation 21. It's the last book in the Bible. It's the second to last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 21, John the Apostle has had a vision of what's going to happen in the final battle where Jesus conquers Satan once and for all. And then in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, John writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I want to pause here just for a second. It says the sea was no more. Now, why is there no sea in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, in the first century, uh, the sea was a sign of chaos and uncertainty. 
when they would travel the seas, they would get hit by gale winds, and, and they'd find themselves in the midst of storms. In fact, the Apostle Paul, you can read about in Acts, he's shipwrecked once. You know, it was, just, it was a scary time. In fact, if you read Revelation 13, you see that this great monster, this, this weird-headed monster with multiple horns, comes out of the sea, and, and Jesus, of course, has to conquer that monster. The sea was a sign of chaos, but in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no chaos. There's no uncertainty. There's no fear. Because as we continue to read, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There's no chaos in the new heaven, new earth. There's no sea because God is with them. Now, there's still water. There's a river that you're going to read about later in Revelation. But, 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 but there's no sea because there's no chaos. There's no uncertainty because God is constantly present with them in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. In fact, there's no sun, S-U-N. There's no moon. There's no stars because the glory of God lights up the new heaven and the new earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we read these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Notice that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more mourning. That mourning will have ceased because there's no death, there's no pain, there's no suffering. There's only praise in the midst of God's glory. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, but they will be comforted, is ultimately fulfilled when the new heaven and the new earth comes. Yes, as we find ourselves at the end of our rope, if we will turn to God and give our cares and concerns to Jesus, we will see that, yes, I am blessed when I'm poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is mine as I experience the calming presence of God in my life. As I mourn and grieve, you know, blessed are the, those who mourn for they will be comforted. I find comfort as I turn to God and remember the promises of God's word that there will one day be a new heaven and a new earth. Will there be no more mourning, no more pain, no more death? Only praise. And finally, we get to the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They'll inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Now, of these first three beatitudes, I really think the third is the most instructive for you and me today. What I mean by that is we don't want to mourn, but sometimes we do mourn. We don't intentionally try to mourn, but sometimes we do mourn. We mourn when things are not the way we hoped they would be. We mourn at the end of a marriage. We mourn at the death of a loved one. We mourn at when we lose a job. We mourn at the end of a dream. We mourn these things, but we don't want to mourn. And we don't necessarily want to be poor in spirit, you know? We're poor in spirit when we're desperate, when we're at the end of our rope. And, and sometimes we will be at the end of our rope, but we don't necessarily want to, to be poor in spirit. But I do think as followers of Jesus, we all should seek to be meek, to be humble. After all, wasn't Jesus meek and humble for you and me? I love what Peter, the apostle, writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He says this, telling us about how God resists the proud and gives grace to the hungry. He says to the humble, likewise, you who are younger... That's all of us, aren't we all young at heart, right? Young at heart, yeah. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Be subject to elders. Now, the, he, the Greek word there for subject can also be translated as submit. Uh, it's upotasso. It's found in Ephesians 5.21 as well where, where Paul the apostle tells us that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because isn't that what Jesus did? He submitted himself to death on a cross. He humbled himself. He who was God incarnate humbled himself and died the death that we deserve on a cross so that our sins might be atoned for once and for all, so that we might know that in Jesus Christ, it is finished. We don't have to live in fear. Our sins have been atoned for. And then the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf, proving to be who he said he was, the Son of God, the great I Am, the Savior of the world. Amen? It's the good news of the gospel is because Jesus is willing to submit himself to death on a cross, we can be saved. And as followers of Jesus, shouldn't we be willing to submit to others, to other Christians, out of reverence for Christ? Richard Foster, in his Christian classic, Celebration of Discipline, writes this about submission. He says, submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden burden of always needing to get our own way. It's a burden to insist on having it our way. I know Burger King says you can have it your way, but that is a burden and in all areas of life to insist on your way all the time. It, that is a burden to try and battle and make sure that you always win and always get it your way. That is a burden. You need to let go of that burden. Sometimes we just need to submit. In Romans 13, Paul tells us that we should submit to the government authorities that have been placed over us. Jesus says something very similar when he says we should pay, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar in talking about paying taxes and give to God what is God's. As followers of Christ, we should be willing to submit to the government authorities. As followers of Christ, we should be willing to submit to what Jesus said. And, and as followers of Christ, we should be willing to do what Jesus did. Submit to others out of reverence for Christ to put the needs of others before our own. Now, I know as Americans, this is not instinctive. This is not easy for us to do because we like our independence. We like our freedom. We like to think I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, right? That's why we like to think, right? But as followers of Jesus, we need to be willing to submit to the authority of others as long as it doesn't conflict with God's word. You know, some of you have heard me share about our, our mission trip to Spain in June, and uh, that was an interesting opportunity for me to practice submission I'll be honest with you, it was not what I wanted to do. Uh, you see, we were stuck in the Rick Husband Airport, which is a lovely airport here in Amarillo, but, uh, you know, for three hours, not a place I want to spend three hours. And we were there because it was raining in Dallas, and somehow they don't know how to handle rain in Dallas, right? So we couldn't fly to Dallas, so we're stuck in the airport in Amarillo. Finally, after three hours, uh, more than what you'd planned, we finally got to take off to Dallas. And when we get to Dallas, I'm looking at the watch, and I'm thinking, okay, we might still make our connecting flight to Madrid, Spain. This might still work out. However... Because so many planes were waiting, we all seemed to land at once, and there wasn't a gate available for us, and we had to sit on the tarmac inside the plane for over an hour. When we got off the plane, I looked at the clock, and it was too late, and the flight had already departed. It just left us here in Dallas. Well, I thought, hey, this is the United States. We're, we're, we're problem fixers. We can fix this problem. We're problem solvers. We waited in a line that is longer than any line you'd find at Disneyland to rebook our flight, to say, hey, look, can we take the next flight to Spain tomorrow? It's Friday night. Can we catch the next flight to Spain on Saturday? And they said, no, there's no available seats on Saturday's flights or Sunday's flights, but we can put you on Monday's flights. I'm like, Monday? What is this? Is this America? 
but I'm flying on Iberia, which is a Spanish airline, so I didn't know that. So anyway, I'm like, oh man, this is no good. So we get stuck in Dallas, which I used to live in Dallas. Dallas is a fine city, but not a place I'd planned to vacation for two extra days on, on, without purpose. And so we're in Dallas, and then finally, on Monday evening, we were able to catch our flight to Spain. However, because they were so inefficient at the Iberia gates uh, getting us on the plane, we landed in Madrid an hour late. And when we got to the Madrid airport, we had to go through three checkpoints for our passport. I have no idea why they've got to check your passport three times in Madrid, Spain, at the airport there. And then, like, the gates are not closed. We're running, and we're moving as quick as we can. And I'm like, I tell my group, I said, look, I'm going to run to the gate. I, I, I speak a little bit of Spanish, hablo un poquito espanol. So I'm going to run to the gate. I'm going to try to explain to the gate, hey, hold it. We've got 13, 13 mas personas coming. You know, we're going to be there soon. And I get to the gate, and I tell her, oh, and, and, and the plane is there. I can see it. And it says, uh, final boarding. So I'm like, oh, we're good. But the door's shut. And so I begin to explain to the lady, I said, oh, look, my group of 13 from Dallas, you know, we're here, and, and, and her English isn't very good. So I try to do the best I can in Spanish. I said, estoy aquí, el avión, necesito, me en el avión, está bien? You know, I'm like, I need to get on the plane, is that okay? And I'm trying to explain to her as best I can, and she goes, lo siento, puerta cera, the doors close. You know, I'm like, what? And then all of a sudden, this woman in a wheelchair wheels up, they open the door for her, and they let her on. I'm like, hey, what's going on here? I said, I said, why does she get on? It goes, oh, well, she's special. I said, well, I'm special. <laughs> my mom says I am, right? Aren't we all special? Well, I try to make my case. I'm getting kind of heated here. And then I begin to realize I'm on a mission trip. <laughs> Winning an argument with this lady is not going to really be a good witness of the humble love of Christ. And I said, Lord, this is in your hands. And so I submitted to her authority and they ended up putting us in a hotel, and we caught our next flight to Compostela the next day. It's not easy to submit. It's not easy to humble ourselves. But if we will remember how Jesus, in his great love for us, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that you and I might be saved, that our sins might be atoned for, that we might have the assurance of eternal life in him if we simply turn to him in faith, then we will have his peace. We'll have his joy we will have his love. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, as we read your powerful Sermon on the Mount, it challenges us to think about, are we humble like you were? Are we willing to submit to the authority of others? Are we willing to put the needs of others before our own? God, I pray that we might humble ourselves, knowing that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. I pray, Lord, that when we have those moments when we're grieving, that we might turn to you in faith and experience the comfort that only you can bring. As we turn to your word, we're reminded of the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no more mourning. And Lord, when we find ourselves at the end of our rope, I pray that we might turn to you and give our burdens to you so that you might carry them for us, knowing that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Oh God, I pray that you continue to guide us as you read your sermon each and every day for the next 30 days. May it transform our thinking and transform our living so that others may see our good deeds and give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.